Well, it's been said that good teachers and communicators are good illustrators and that they provide windows of stories to help you understand what they're trying to communicate. With that criteria in mind, it should come as no surprise to us that the Bible, which is the very best tool of communication, is literally flooded with figures of speech highlighting various aspects of the Christian life. From front to back and beginning to end, the Bible employs several illustrations that address important spiritual principles of godly living. Take, for example, the armor of God. In Ephesians 6.11, Paul exhorts believers to put on the whole armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil. That is a metaphor. When Paul uses the armor of God uh, in Ephesians 6, he uses as a metaphor a figure of speech to help us understand firsthand how we can overcome and have victory over the evil one. Another example of a metaphor is that of a soldier. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 3, Paul told Timothy, endure hardship. He said, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And the question that comes to mind is, how is a Christian like a soldier? And Paul goes on to answer that question in the very next verse by saying that just as a soldier called to duty cannot allow the, the normal affairs of civilian life distract him from serving his country, so must every Christian refuse to allow the things of the world be a distraction from serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that metaphor, the one of the soldier and the one I mentioned earlier regarding the armor of God, are just a couple of the hundreds and hundreds of illustrations found throughout the Bible. In describing the Christian life, the New Testament alone uses illustrations such as a teacher, a student, a farmer, a builder, a vine, a branch, a sheep, a shepherd, a master, a servant, a father, a child, an ambassador, a vessel, a bride, and a bridegroom, and the list goes on and on and on and on. When reading through the New Testament, illustrations are literally everywhere. And interestingly, one of the most common illustrations found throughout the New Testament is the metaphor of an athlete, and more specifically, the metaphor of a runner competing in a race to win. To see what I mean, open your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me, just by way of introduction, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and this verse is probably familiar to many of you, but it's just another way to illustrate just how often this metaphor of an athlete, of a runner running in a race, competing to win, how often it comes up in the New Testament pages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? You see, the believers in Corinth to whom Paul was writing to were very familiar with athletics. They were very familiar with uh, the competition of running. The city of Corinth hosted something very similar to our Olympic Games. They were called the Isthmian Games. They were held every other year. And so these people knew all about races and all about athletes running to win. The athletes who showed up to these races didn't show up just to get a t-shirt. They didn't show up just to get a little participation certificate. They didn't just come to to compete for the fun of it. No, these athletes trained and competed for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to win. And Paul, who was a master illustrator, drew from that analogy and, and drove home this application point in verse 24 where he writes, Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Just as an athlete gives his best to win a prize, Paul says, look, as a Christian, you should give your best and give your all in living for Jesus Christ. He's pointing to these athletes. He says, look at them. Look at the way they train. Look at the way they compete. Look at the self-control that they exercise all to win an earthly prize. How much more should we do that as Christians? Because our reward isn't earthly. Our reward is eternal. 
Sadly, while some Christians are content in just getting by in their spiritual walk, Paul says, look, run your race to win. And so this is one example of the runner metaphor and the athlete running to win the prize. Another one that is like it is found in Philippians chapter 3. Turn there if you would. Over to Philippians chapter 3. And this is, man, this is probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. Philippians chapter 3. You really begin to see the zeal and, and passion of the Apostle Paul come out of his life and out of his heart as he's describing his own Christian life, his own present pursuit of, of Christ's likeness. You get to verse 12, and Paul writes these words, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. In other words, I don't count myself to have arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, when Paul ran his spiritual race, he didn't run just in any direction. Instead, he ran with a goal and focus and purpose in mind, and it was the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so this particular metaphor, the one of a a runner, appears a number of times throughout the New Testament. In fact, you see it in Galatians 5, you see it in 1 Corinthians 9, and here in Philippians 3, you see it over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, over in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know what's interesting? This is the same imagery and the same analogy the writer of Hebrews draws from to encourage all of his readers as recorded for us over in Hebrews chapter 12. So if you're not there already, meet me over at the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This will be our main text of consideration for our study of God's word this morning. In verse 1, the author of Hebrews writes, Therefore we also... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary unless you become discouraged in your souls. The key emphasis of this entire section is a word that is found in each of these three verses. It is the word endure or endurance. You say, what does it mean? Well, in the negative sense, this word means to not waver, to not give up, to not slow down. In the positive sense, it means to forge ahead, to press on, and to remain steadfast regardless of the obstacles that are in front of you. One commentator said it this way, what is endurance? It is the steady determination to keep going and to keep pressing on regardless of the temptation to slow down or to give up. And the fact that we're all called to exhibit this kind of quality implies that the race of the Christian life isn't an easy one. It is hard. And during some seasons of life, it is very hard. Interestingly, the word for race in the original language in verse 1 brings that out. The word for race in the Greek is the Greek word agona, from which we get our English word agony. What that tells us is that the race of the Christian life is not a short race. It is a long one. It is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And that is why it takes great endurance to live the Christian life. Without endurance, you may start well. But most likely, you won't finish the race as strong and as hard as you ought to. 
When it comes to running, I learned this lesson the hard way back a few years ago. Some of you know, I, for the past few summers, I've been tra- traveling down to Southern California to take courses down at the Master's College, some seminary courses to further my education and, and further my training and ministry. And it's really been a, a great experience these last few years. And, and while there, I typically stay with a couple whose names are Matt and Kelly. And Matt and Kelly have really become some good friends over the last few years. In fact, just last fall, Tracy and I went down. One of their sons plays football for Air Force, so we went and watched Boise and Air Force play. So we've really gotten to know them over the last few years. But I'll never forget the first time I stayed at their house a few years back. And during the week of courses, I would typically wake up early in the morning and, and go for maybe a three-mile jog every morning before class. Class was about eight hours a day. And so you get real fidgety, and, and it's tough to sit in the class for eight hours a day. And so typically I get up in my morning routine is get up, go early, go run. And, and sometimes I get back from class and do the same things in the evenings. And so Matt and Kelly you know, started noticing that you know, I did a lot of running. And so one of the nights they said, hey, would you be interested in joining us for one of our runs? And without any hesitation, I said, sure, I'd love to. Well, what I didn't know before I went running with this couple is that Matt and Kelly were good athletes. I mean, really good. And uh, when he was younger, Matt played baseball for Arizona State and then went on to play professional baseball for the Los Angeles Angels. And Kelly, in her younger years, was an Olympic gymnast. And the two of them combined together have continued to stay in great shape as they bike long trails, run in different marathons, and have engaged in other such activities as that. That would have all been great to know before the run. (laughs) But I didn't know any of that until after the run. And so with great confidence, I agreed to go running with them, and I later paid the price for it. And I still remember the morning privity vividly. They told me the trail was about five miles long and about the two, two and a half mile mark. They said, you know, there's going to be a little hill. We'll go up, come down, and and, uh, we'll come out together. Assumably, right? Well, uh, it sounded fairly doable, so of course I said, let's go for it. And so off we went. I was feeling really good at first, and we were running, and, and uh, even though the, pa- the pace was a lot faster than I was used to, and, and so I thought, this is great. So we got to the half mile mark, things were going well. We got to the you know, mile mark, things were going okay. And, and uh, we got to the mile and a half mark, things were starting to go downhill. And by the time we got to the two mile mark, I was really starting to feel it. And as we went a little further, we took some turns through an area of thick trees, and all of a sudden, the panic mode set in as I came face-to-face with the hill we were about to climb. I had totally forgotten about that hill. And uh, all of a sudden, we came face-to-face with it. And when I pictured the hill the day before, I pictured something smaller. I pictured something more simple, maybe even easy. Uh, This was just the opposite. Uh, This hill had a snake path that went in one direction, and it was vertical, and uh, eventually we got to the hill, and, and once we did, my thighs felt like they caught on fire. You know the feeling, don't you? And uh, while Matt and Kelly were ahead, a little ways, conversing about their day and talking about their <laughs> upcoming plans for the week, I was doing everything I could to not pass out while trailing behind. Well, as the run went on, as the slope got steeper, you could probably guess what happened. I eventually had to stop. And even though I had hoped to push through that morning as we went for that run, What prevented me from finishing just as strong as I had started was a lack of endurance. Or you could say it this way, the thing that I needed most to finish well was the very thing I lacked the most, and that was endurance. And interestingly, that's the same principle that holds true for the Christian life. Listen, endurance is the key quality to starting well and to finishing well. And if anyone needed to hear that encouragement, it was the Jewish believers who were the audience and recipients of this very letter. Just a quick background on the book of Hebrews. The primary target of this letter was a group of Jewish believers who were slipping. 
the time this letter was written, Judaism was a, a protected religion under Roman law, but Christianity was not. Therefore, these Jewish believers were tempted to throw in the towel by going back under the protective umbrella of Judaism for a little while, only to later turn back once the persecution was over. And knowing that to be the case, the writer of Hebrews encourages them to do just the opposite. In chapter 2, verse 1, the author encourages them to not drift away. In chapter 4, verse 14, he exhorts them to hold fast to their confession. In chapter 10, verse 35, he challenges them to not cast away their confidence, which has great reward. In chapter 11, the writer goes on to give several examples of men and women who did not give up and went on to demonstrate faithful trust in the midst of difficult, difficult adversity. By the time you get to chapter 12, the challenge comes to a crescendo as the author provides a summarized exhortation, run with endurance, the race that is set before us. The question that comes to mind is how? How? How does a Christian do that? How can a Christian experience steadfast endurance over the course of his or her Christian life? And here in this text, the author gives us insight and provides us with four keys to running with endurance, four of them. The first is found in the first part of verse 1 where the author writes, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. The word therefore in the beginning of this verse shows us that there's an an inherent connection between this content or this section in chapter 12 and the men and women of faith that are described for us back in chapter 11. Many of you are probably familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. It's the chapter commonly known as the, the hall of faith in which the writer portrays a group of men and women lined up on a stage serving as a testimony of faithful obedience, listen to this, especially in times of adversity, especially in times of great difficulty. What the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12 is that these believers stand before us as examples. These faithful men and women are like those sitting in the stands of a race, listen to this, not for the purpose of watching us, but for the purpose of serving as inspirations to running our race well. You know, some of you maybe at one point or another maybe heard somebody teach on this text that, uh, that you know, all the Old Testament saints are sitting in some sort of glorified coliseum watching our lives and watching us run our race. However, that's not what this verse is teaching. My guess is those who are in heaven aren't all that interested in looking at me because they're busy fixing their gaze on more important matters like the wonders of Christ and the amazing glory of heaven. This verse does not teach these individuals are watching us. Instead, the encouragement is for us to look to them, to learn from their example. And these believers serve as encouragement for us to run. How so? Well, at least in two ways. Number one, first, by showing us that there are people who have done it. There are people who have walked extremely difficult paths in life, and they endured. Have you ever faced a circumstance in life and thought to yourself, there's absolutely no way I can do this. Man, there's, there's no way I can walk through this. There's no way I can walk through this challenge in life. Well, the men and women of Hebrews 11 serve as examples to us that it can be done. There's a sense in which the path, it's already been paved. And the trail, it's already been blazed. And our job is not to create a whole new path or blaze a whole new trail, but simply to follow the footsteps of those mentioned and described in Hebrews chapter 11. The message of Hebrews chapter 12 is pretty simple. Walk by faith as these men and women walked and lived by faith. And what is faith? What is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 actually answers that question for us when it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for 
the evidence of things not seen. In other words, faith is believing what you know is really going to happen based on the convictions of what is taught in the Word of God. What is faith? It is living in this life based on the realities of what you know to be true in the next. And the cloud of witnesses serve as powerful, a powerful testimony to living life that way, whether it be Abel or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Joseph or Rahab, each combined together as a great cloud of witnesses who give testimony to the great power and blessing of a life of faith. So in that sense, listen, they're an encouragement to us, aren't they? They show us that by the grace of God, it can be done. And then second, I believe the cloud of witnesses in verse 1 serve as an encouragement to us because though they are models of faith, listen to this, they had flaws and they had shortcomings and they had feet of clay just like you and I do. I mean, just think about some of the men and women. I was really thinking through this this, this last week and preparing for this message and reading through Hebrews 11. Think about all who are described and included in this list. You have Sarah. Sarah, who in Genesis 17 laughed and doubted that God would cause her to conceive and give birth to a son as God had promised. And then you have Jacob, a man who showed favoritism as a father to his son Joseph and ended up suffering great consequences for that. And then you have Moses. Moses was a great leader, wasn't he? A godly man. And yet we're told from Scripture he was refused entrance into the land due to an outburst of anger and striking the rock rather than speaking to it as God had commanded. And then you have Samson. Samson, who who failed to guard his heart in relationships and it eventually cost him his life. You know what's amazing to me about the list of men and women that are described in Hebrews 11? What's amazing to me is how God, knowing all these men and women, knowing all their failures, knowing all their weaknesses, knowing all their shortcomings, still chose to commend them. You know what that does for me? That gives me great hope and great encouragement that he can use my life too. So what is one key to, to running the race with endurance? The first is remembering those who have walked faithfully and choosing to learn from their example The next is found in the latter part of verse 1, where it says, we'll start at the beginning of verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The second key to running with endurance is eliminating every sin and every distraction. The image being portrayed here is of an athlete stripping down for a race. If you're familiar with athletics, then you know that the goal of every athlete, the goal of every runner, is to wear the least amount of clothing possible so nothing is a hindrance to the race. Recently, I read an article about Nike becoming the next, uh, striking a deal with the NFL to become the next outfitter in the league's uniforms. And uh, the headline of the article caught my eye. It said, Built for Speed. And as I read the article, it went on to describe and highlight the lighter fabric used by Nike, uh, used for the new uniforms to allow for a greater range of motion and to allow athletes to run at a faster pace and a faster speed. That's what's being described in this verse here. In order to run effectively, the writer of Hebrews says, you have to get rid of the useless weight. You can't run a race with a heavy jacket on and expect to win. There are certain things that need to be eliminated in order to to run the race effectively. There are certain things that need to be removed to prevent slowing down in the race. Well, what are those things? What are those things? What is it that can hinder us from running our race with endurance? Well, the writer of Hebrews answers that question in a twofold fashion. He says, let us laying aside every weight and every sin. 
The word weight is actually translated as encumbrance in some translations. And the fact that the writer distinguishes, uh, distinguishes this from sin implies that whatever the weight might be, it is not inherently sinful. In fact, in some cases, the issues that become encumbrances for us can actually be things that are good. Take, for example, the issue of food. I think we'd all agree, that, uh, agree with that food is a, a very good thing. And as you know, I work with high school students, and so anytime I'm spending time with students, food is somehow involved and usually somewhere close by. And if you've ever spent time with teenagers or raised a teenager, you know what that's all about. But food is a good thing. And uh, God provides us with food to nourish our bodies and give us strength to, to carry out the tasks He desires us to fit, uh, fulfill in our lives. However, for some, food can easily become a focus. And for some, it can become an extreme crave to the point where a person indulges in it, exercises no self-control, and eventually becomes a glutton. That is an example of how a good thing can turn into a hindrance in our progress and joy as believers. Another example is recreation or outdoor activities. Don't you love the outdoors? We love the outdoors. And uh, hiking trails or hunting in the woods, backpacking in the mountains, fishing in rivers and streams, going water skiing, uh, wakeboarding at the lake, those are all very fun, very enjoyable activities. James 1.17, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And if you're like me, outdoor activities equals a very good thing. God has given us many things in His creation to enjoy. However, however, if your love for the outdoors becomes more important to you than what's most important in life, that is when you know it has become a weight in your life. For example, if your love for outdoor activities prevents you from consistently coming to church Sunday mornings, or can I add this, and consistently gathering for corporate worship on Sunday evenings, that is when you know a good thing has it turned into a weight and into an encumbrance in your spiritual life. So you see, there are many things that can fit into the category of a weight or an encumbrance. It could be a sport, it could be a hobby, a pet, a business, a television, a social site such as Facebook, anything that if not viewed with the right lens or seen with the right perspective, cripples your walk and becomes a problematic, ongoing hindrance in your own spiritual life. By the way, can you identify that weight in your own life? Each of us have things in our lives that pull at us and are a temptation to weigh us down and from, from running our race well. Hey, what is that issue for you? Well, in addition to mentioning weights or encumbrances, the writer mentions sin as something else that prevents us from running with endurance. The fact is you can't hold on to your sin and run with endurance at the same time. To run the race effectively, you have to be willing to strip down anything that entangles you in a sinful way. So which sin... And which temptation is that for you? What sin do you you constantly hear the voice of the Spirit of God pricking your conscience to rid your life of? For some people, it's anger. For others, it's lust. For others, it's maybe lying or envy. Maybe for some of you, it's the issue of laziness. Which is it for you? What sin most often comes between you and Jesus? Well, based on verse 1, the job of every Christian is to develop an awareness of the weights and the sins that are a hindrance and seek then to eliminate every single one. Eliminating every sin and distraction is imperative to running our race well as Christians. The third key to running with endurance is concentrating your faith on Christ. Concentrating your faith on Christ. Look at verse 2. 
It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You know, I love how the NASB translates verse 2. It says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Fixing your gaze upon him. You know what this verse tells us? That the key to endurance isn't a program, and neither is it a method. The key to endurance, listen, is a person. That's what gives us endurance, concentrating our faith on Christ and fixing our gaze upon him. The Apostle Paul is a great example of someone who lived life with that kind of focus. Turn back, if you would, back to Philippians chapter 3, if you would. You can hold your place here in Hebrews 12, back to Philippians chapter 3. And <clears throat> Some of you are familiar with this chapter. This is the chapter, of course, we looked at verses 12 through 14 already. But this is the, the chapter where Paul describes what went on in the heart, his own heart when he gave his life to Christ. Of course, you have the, the, the event in Acts chapter 9 where Christ met Saul at the road to Damascus. And of course, that's when his life was transformed. But what Philippians 3 does for us is it gives us insight again on what went on in his heart at the moment he gave his life to Christ. What was going on in his mind? In Philippians 3 verse 7, Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You know, Paul was looking at his life. He was looking at all the religious achievements and all his credentials. And he said, look, all of that is nothing. It is trash. It is garbage compared to the all-surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Well, as the, the verses unfold here, by the time you get to verse 10... Paul begins to describe his own present walk. And after 30 years of walking with the Lord and being a Christian, notice how Paul goes on to describe his present walk in verse 10 where he writes, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. After 30 years of walking with the Lord, Paul's passion, listen, was still to know Christ better. Isn't that cool? I mean, think about where are you going to be after walking with the Lord for 30 years? Paul's passion, his drive, was still to know Christ better. It's obvious from this text here that the very centerpiece of Paul's life was to know Christ. We know from earlier verses in this chapter that Paul already had a saving knowledge of Christ. He already knew Christ in terms of salvation. You say, well, what's the significance? Well, the significance is this. When Paul made this statement in verse 10, we know he isn't referring to the issue of salvation. Instead, what Paul is basically saying in the first part of verse 10 is this. I already know Christ in terms of salvation. I've already entered into a relationship with him. I've already experienced his righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to know him more. And I want to know him better. And I want to know him more deeply and more intimately. That was Paul's focus. That was his life. Paul's entire life was centered around and focused on the person of Christ and knowing him. One of Paul's greatest motivations in life was his relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. Could the same be said of your life? Is Christ the center of your affections? Is he the sole and primary focus of your Christian life? Or let me ask you the question this way. Is Christ, is he just a part of your life? Or is he the point of it? You know, I appreciate Rick Holland's words when he said, quote, as strange as, And unthinkable as it may seem, in the hurricane of Christian activity and in the avalanche of Christian things in which most of us live, Jesus himself can actually come up missing. 
What a challenging thought. In the midst of our Christian routine, in the midst of our busyness as Christians, here's something to challenge your thought. Christ can actually come up missing. Have you ever walked through a season of your life where the Lord seemed distant? I know I have, and I'm sure my guess is many of you have as well. You go through seasons of life, and you say, man, just maybe your prayers seem to bounce off the walls or the ceiling, and, and you just seem distant from the Lord, and, and I know I have. And in looking at my own life, I think that that can often be traced to a shift in focus on something other than Christ. What I mean is in the midst of our routine, we reduce Christianity to Christianity and not to Christ. We begin reading our Bibles just to check off our quiet time list rather than to know Christ better. We engage in certain activities and avoid other ones because that's just what good Christians do. We do it out of a motive just because that's what Christianity is and not out of a motive to please the Savior. Can I just encourage you with something? Christianity is not about behavior modification. It's not just a matter of doing more or trying harder. It's so easy to begin defining our faith just in those terms. Instead, Christianity is first and foremost about a relationship with the living Savior. Listen, He is the one to be our focus. And He is the one who should be our primary motivation to living out the Christian life. You know, I love what John Owen said. The early English Puritan, he once wrote this, quote, A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive our souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now the more spiritual and heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason that the spiritual life in our souls withers is because we fill our minds with other things. But when the mind is filled with the mind of Christ and His glory, these other things will be expelled. This is how our spiritual lives are revived. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. You want to know how you can run your race with endurance? Fix your eyes on Christ and rest your faith in him. Remember how the songwriter put it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, a fourth key to running with endurance is found in verse 2. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Back to Hebrews chapter 12 and Verse 2, the author writes, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The word consider in verse 3 means to think closely or to contemplate or to ponder. This is not talking about just a a quick glance at something. This is talking about meditating and thinking closely about something. And so here's the question. Have you ever considered closely what gave Jesus the ability to endure? I think we'd all agree that Jesus suffered a great deal over the course of his life on earth. And Isaiah 53.3, it says Jesus was despised and rejected by men and Mark 3.21, it says he was looked down upon by his own family members. In fact, the the picture there is of his own family members trying to rescue him from himself. In Luke 4.29, it says the people of his own hometown, Nazareth, uh, tried to kill him after preaching the truth. In John 1.11, it says he was rejected and pushed away even by his own people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In each of the gospel accounts, it says he was unjustly beaten, spit upon by soldiers, pierced with a crown of thorns... 
and led to die a criminal's death even though he was innocent, even though he did no wrong. How did Jesus do it? How was he able to push through all the adversity and all of the challenges and all of the suffering? Well, some at this point say that the reason Jesus was able to endure all that he did was because he was God. They say, look, Jesus was God, therefore nothing could faze him. I don't believe that's the accurate, the accurate answer. In fact, I know it isn't. While it is true Jesus was God and maintained his deity throughout his earthly life, nowhere in Scripture does it suggest his deity as the reason for his endurance. What we are told in Scripture, and specifically in Hebrews 12, verse 2, is that what gave Jesus endurance was the joy that was set before him. In other words, Jesus' faith in future realities is what gave him endurance in the moments he suffered the most. Jesus knew that the outcome of his pain would be salvation and redemption and glory. Therefore, he endured. Beloved, do you ever get discouraged? Life can be very wearisome at times. Do you ever get tired? Do you ever grow weary? If so, then consider the endurance of Christ. And remember that the very thing that gave Jesus endurance is the very thing that gives us endurance. Looking ahead and focusing our minds on truths and realities that are eternal. Well, in closing, turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Back a few letters to the book of Colossians chapter 3. It's a great passage that encourages us to fix our mind on things above and on future realities. Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Beloved, these are the kind of truths that give us endurance. These are the kind of realities that if focused on will give us the right perspective. And these are the kind of truths that if practice will enable us to say at the end of our race like Paul did at the end of his race, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So what are the keys to enduring the race of the Christian life? What are the keys to starting and finishing well? Well, there are four of them. Number one, remembering those who have walked faithfully and learning from their example. Number two, eliminating every sin and distraction from your life so nothing is a hindrance to running well. Number three, concentrating our faith on Christ because he is the author and finisher of our faith and the very source and the very joy of our salvation. And number four, contemplating the endurance of Christ and choosing to walk and live as he did with a focus on things that are eternal. You know, as I think about running with endurance, a story comes to mind I read a while back regarding a family from Cambodia. A small village of Cambodia, Haim, a Christian teacher, knew that the youthful black-clad Khmer Rouge soldiers now heading across the field were coming this time for him. Haim was determined that when his turn came, he would die with dignity and without complaint. Since liberation on April 17, 1975, what Cambodian had not considered this day? Haim's entire family was rounded up that afternoon. They were the old dandruff, bad blood, enemies of the glorious revolution, CIA, uh, CIA agents. They were Christians. 
The family spent a sleepless night comforting one another and praying for each other as they lay bound together in the dewy grass beneath a stand of friendly trees. The next morning, the teenage soldiers returned and led them from their Gethsemane to their place of execution to the nearby killing fields. The family was ordered to dig a large grave for themselves and consenting to Haim's request for a moment to prepare themselves for death, father, mother, and children, hands linked together, knelt together around the gaping pit and prayed. With loud cries to God, Haim began exhorting both the soldiers and all those looking on from afar to repent and to believe the gospel. And then in a moment of panic, one of Haim's youngest sons leapt to his feet and bolted into the surrounding bush and disappeared. Haim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority prevailed upon the soldiers not to pursue the lad, but to allow him to call the boy back. The knots of onlookers peering around trees and the soldiers and the stunned families sit still, kneeling at the graveside, looked on in awe as Haim began calling his son, pleading with him to return to die together as a family. What comparison, my son, he called out. Stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, wretched and alone to joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few tense minutes, the bushes parted, and the lad, weeping, walked slowly back to his place beside the kneeling family. Now we are ready to go, Haim told the soldiers. A few of those watching doubted that day that as each of those Christians' bodies toppled silently into the earthen pit by which the victims themselves had prepared, that their souls soared heavenward to a place prepared by their Lord. Beloved, only when we fix our eyes on Christ and only when we look to Him with eyes of faith can we run the race before us and endure as these believers had to the very very end of our lives. Father, the Christian life can be very difficult at times. And there are unforeseen challenges and difficult obstacles and at times extremely hard circumstances that make it very, very challenging to run. And Father, for those who are here this morning who are currently in that position, for those who are running but are very tired, running but, but are weary, Lord, we'd ask that you would strengthen them. Father, give them fuel for their faith and give the encouragement and the grace that they need to keep pressing forward to run their race well. And Father, for each of us who are here this morning, Lord, help us to not get entangled in the things of this world, but rather to fix our eyes on Jesus. I think of the author of Hebrews throughout the whole letter where he says, Jesus is so much better. He's better than the angels, better than the Old Testament system. He truly is the best as he is the only one who can offer true and lasting satisfaction. And so, Father, for those who are here this morning who don't know you and don't have a relationship with you, Lord, help them to understand that truth. Give them eyes to see the depths of their sin and the hearts to believe that Christ is the only solution to their sin and the only path to their salvation. And, Father, for those of us who are here this morning who do know you, Father, cause our eyes, cause us to set our eyes upon Jesus and to walk by faith, not only now, not only in this season of our lives, but to the very, very end of our lives. Lord, help us to run the race with faith, by faith, and with endurance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.